Are we finally done with this worship stuff? <laughs> Could hardly wait to get to the sermon myself. <clears throat> Actually, I love the worship stuff. Next uh, Sunday, we're going to have a special guest. So uh, you're going to meet a shepherd. Be nice to him. I know they're not generally allowed in proper company like this, but we're going to allow a shepherd into our church next Sunday morning. Let's uh, go ahead and spend a few moments asking God to bless our time. Father, it is indeed rich to sing some of the hymns, to sing some of the choruses to you and you are worthy. Father, far from a filler, it is our heartbeat to lift up praises to you. And Father, uh, it's not just this church, it's churches all around the world that rightly worship you. Father, this time I want to lift up Christ the Rock Church. Father, they've had a traumatic week with their senior pastor leaving this earth. And we pray, Father, for a sweetness of fellowship, encouraging one another, and singing praises to you. We pray that your spirit would just surround that Christ-honoring body of believers and carry them through this difficult time of grief and pain. And for immediate family, we ask for a special measure of grace. Many of us know what it's like to lose a loved one. and We pray on behalf of this dear church. And Father, we pray for the text that we look at today impart it to our hearts, impart it to our souls. We pray that we would be impacted and changed, transformed by your word. You tell us in today's text, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be sons of God. May we be peacemakers. May we have your heart. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Dr. Everett Worthington, he's a clinical psychologist. He's a professor at the University of Virginia Commonwealth. He is the research director of the Templeton Foundation on Forgiveness. He's an author of 20 books, a number of which are on the topic of forgiveness. Many consider Dr. Worthington an expert or the expert in the Christian world on the topic of forgiveness. Written extensively about it, thought extensively about it, but never really experienced it at a depth that he would in 1997. It was New Year's Eve, 1997. The two thugs broke into the home of his mother who was up in age. They used a crowbar to take her life and to destroy her property. Dr. Worthington's brother discovered it when he called his mother to wish her a happy new year. Nobody answered. He went over and he found the grisly scene. 
far too grisly to describe in detail. He called his brother. He called the authorities. They came over. Of course, the brothers were in utter shock. Who wouldn't have been? In the midst of his shock, Dr. Worthington had a reoccurring thought. And the thought went like this. I need a small room with the perpetrators in it. Give me a bat. 30 minutes is what I need. And he thought that over and over and over again. He said it was a full 24 hours before the word forgiveness ever crossed his mind. Here is perhaps Christianity's expert on the topic. And for 24 hours, forgiveness never crosses his mind. And if you've been wronged, you've been hurt, you've been wounded, you've been injured, maybe you, I, we can relate. He said, I'd read all of the clinical studies. I'd done the counseling. I knew the Bible verses by memory. I had counseled many on the topic of forgiveness, but I had always done it without the emotion of needing to forgive. And suddenly I was face to face with my own need to forgive, and it was very difficult. Did he forgive? He did. He writes about it in his book, The Five Steps for Forgiveness. He talks about it being a long process, a hard process, a difficult one. It doesn't just happen. Let me talk for a moment about what forgiveness is and what it is not. I grew up hearing the, the phrase, forgive and forget. Nonsense. You don't forget. The two are not necessarily related. We can remember and still forgive. To forgive is to no longer hold somebody captive to our own hearts. Captive to us being judge, jury, and executioner to seethe, to desire revenge and vengeance and hatred and vitriol. To forgive is to hand it over to the Lord and to ask him incrementally to take our anger and our hatred away, to curb our discussion about somebody and to cause it to be honoring to the Lord. To forgive does not mean that the perpetrator, if caught, should not serve a sentence, even a severe one. It doesn't mean that immediately somebody is replaced and put back into a position that they once had. It doesn't mean that. It means that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It means we hand it over to God and we no longer serve as that judge, jury, and executioner. Today's text is a little broader than forgiveness, but it certainly includes that. And that may be the pertinent application in our lives today. It may be that at this very moment, God is bringing someone to your mind, my mind, our mind, that collectively we need to leave our gift at the altar and go and reconcile with a brother and then come back. 
Forgiveness is a big part of being a peacemaker. And the seventh beatitude, we looked at the eighth last week, we went out of order, but the seventh beatitude, the last one we'll look at, says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A peacemaker is not an appeaser, it's not a potsy, it's not a doormat. A peacemaker is someone who understands that there's higher law, there's God's law, we won't violate our moral or ethical standards, but as far as it depends on us, we will live at peace with one another, Romans 12, 18. A peacemaker is someone who seeks unity, not unity at all costs, but unity as long as God's moral standards and his ethics and his word are not violated. That's a peacemaker. And God says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will become or be called sons of God. It was the very quotable Puritan Thomas Watson If you want to read a Puritan that's quotable, there's like only one out there. Uh, This is the guy. Uh, He writes things so incredibly colorful. He said, Satan kindles the fire of contention in men's hearts and then stands back and he warms his hands at that fire. Like Satan, non-peacemakers seek disunity, discord, Discord among the brethren, discord among potential people to reach the gospel with, that's a non-peacemaker. As we've gone through the Beatitudes, I did six of them, this is the seventh, and then one was done by my co-workers. Each time I did one, I offered a positive example. Each time I I tried to find someone in the Old or the New Testament that exhibited that attitude that God calls us to put on. But today I'm going to take a different tact. Rather than find someone who exhibited the attitude well, I found two individuals, I think are godly individuals, but they failed in this department. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, the 17th verse, Jesus called them sons of Boanerges, sons of thunder. Now that sounds like a nice tag. You can call me a pastor of thunder, and I like that. But Jesus doesn't mean it as a compliment, not at all. He's talking about their inability to handle things in a peacemaking way. I want to read about these two, James and John, in Luke chapter 9, 51 to 56. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
But he, Jesus, turned and rebuked them, and they went out on to another village. The text begins by telling us that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. I love the way Isaiah puts it. In Isaiah 50, the sixth verse, he said his face was like flint. It didn't move. It was focused on Jerusalem. He will go through 35 villages and towns from the Galilee to Jerusalem, but all the while he's going to Jerusalem. And every step he takes, takes him one step closer to the abuse that will be heaped on Christ. He goes because he saw you and you and you and you and he saw me. He saw us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our need. And every step he takes is one step closer to them driving a crown of thorns onto his head. It's one step closer to women and men spitting on Jesus with spittle cursing down his face. It's one step closer to them driving nails into his wrists and his ankles, a spear into his side. It's one step closer to he who has never sinned becoming sin, being covered with our sin, that through faith in him we would be given eternal life. It's one step closer to Golgotha, to the cross, to the skull, to death, to being placed in another man's tomb, and to resurrection on the third day. He set his face like flint to Jerusalem because he saw you and he saw me. And as he goes from the Galilee up north down to Jerusalem, he's 28 miles north of Jerusalem, he goes to Samaria, Samaritan village. One of two times we know that Jesus went through Samaria. Every other Jew goes around. He went through. And when he got to the Samaritans, because Jesus loves all people, even the people some hate, Jesus loves them. When he got to Samaria, and the Samaritans asked him where he was going, and he said he was going to Jerusalem, the text tells us they rejected him. They don't reject him because he's the Messiah, though they will reject him for that reason. They reject him because he's going to Jerusalem. Now understand historically our picture. Samaritans are half Jew, half Assyrian. Now if you've gone to Israel with me, and a number of you have, you know that I have to walk very carefully around this topic of Samaritans with my friend Duran, who helps lead the trips with me, because if there's one area that we don't agree on and in which he rushes to answer any questions so that he can speak first and I can speak second, it's the topic of Samaritans. Jews today will deny that Samaritans have any Jewish blood, but that's not accurate. Samaritans are right when they claim that their lineage goes back to the patriarchs. They're actually from East Manasseh and Ephraim up north. They're from two of the northern tribes. The year is 722 B.C. It's when Assyria ransacks the ten northern tribes and the ten northern tribes essentially cease to exist. 
And during that time period, many Jews intermarry with Assyrians, and we have a new race, half Jew, half Assyrian. It's Samarians, Samaritans. That's the race. And understand that the animosity between full-blooded Jews and Samaritans has been great. Who are the Assyrians that the Jews intermarried with? Well, mostly they're from Iraq, a little bit from Syria, and a little bit from Turkey. And I asked the question, how do Jews today feel about those from Iraq, Syria, and Turkey? About the same way they felt two and 3,000 years ago. And so for a Jew to intermarry with an Assyrian was an affront to a full-blooded Jew. And so full-blooded Jews hated Samaritans, and Samaritans returned the favor. You remember in 444 B.C., it's when Nehemiah leaves Persia, and he comes back to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. The book of Nehemiah tells us that his main opponent is a man named Sambalat. He's a Samaritan. You remember in the book of Ezra, when Haggai and Ezra and Zerubbabel they come back to rebuild the temple. Some Samaritans offer to help out. Zerubbabel thinks it's a ruse. He thinks that the Samaritans are helping or offering to help in order to cause problems. So he refuses in the fourth chapter of Ezra, and he makes it clear that they will not help because they are building our temple to God, not yours. In other words... Zerubbabel rightly understands that the Samaritans have a syncretistic religion. They are not worshiping the one true God. And so they are not allowed to build the temple to the one true God. In response, the Samaritans build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. But in 150 B.C., some perhaps well-meaning but very prejudicial Jews, destroy the temple at Mount Gerizim. And so the Samaritans start to offer their sacrifices on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. But in 8 B.C., the priests at the temple become quite aware that the sacrifices are not to the one true God, but to a syncretistic God. And so they ban the Samaritans from offering sacrifices in their temple. And how do the Samaritans respond? Some perhaps well-meaning but prejudicial Samaritans throw bones, human bones, into the Holy of Holies and they desecrate God's temple. The Samaritans have rejected most of Scripture. They accept the first five books. Why? Because it's all about the patriarchs and they claim patriarchal blood. But they reject the rest of the Old Testament because the rest of the Old Testament continues to talk about the temple where? In Jerusalem. And so when Jesus goes through Samaria and they say, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. They immediately reject Jesus. Because he's going to the rival temple in the rival city of a rival God. And don't you love James and John? What peacemakers? 
I kind of picture them in their old VW bus. Maybe a big peace sign on it, probably listening to their eight-track tape of groovy music heading to Woodstock. They're just chilling out. And they say, Jesus, Mr. Peace Man, would you like us to ask God to send some ICBMs down to destroy the village of Samaria? That's the way they respond. And verse 55 has Jesus rebuking them. Why? Because God wants Christ's followers to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, to be a peacemaker does not mean we compromise. It doesn't mean we ignore sin. It doesn't mean that we refuse to engage on biblical hot-button issues. We must do that to be faithful to God's word. But we need to do it with grace and humility, not a holier-than-thou attitude. We stand firm where the Bible stands firm, and we push forth God's agenda. But we do it with grace and humility. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. I love the way Paul puts it. In Romans chapter 12, the 19th verse, he said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus put it in rather stark words in Luke 6, 27 and 8. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. James and John wanted to condemn. They wanted to destroy. They wanted to have the last word, to make a point, to win an argument, to put someone down. They wanted to defend the righteousness of God, but they did it in all the wrong ways. And when we defend the righteousness of God in the wrong way, we sin. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We need to say this, but say it carefully. Peacemaking is not appeasing. It's truth-telling, truth-living, and shalom-extending. We need all three. Truth-telling. We don't compromise. Truth living, we don't cower to the culture. And unity seeking, peace seeking, that is a peacemaker. I don't know about you, but I often cringe when I see certain Facebook posts and tweets and emails that are passed on by Christ's followers, generally of a political persuasion, sometimes even of my political persuasion, but it's done in such a way that it's nasty, it's unkind, it lacks charity, it makes a characterization of one's opponent, probably not fairly, 
giving one's opponent one's due. And is this what a Christ follower ought to be like? Is, is this how we ought to represent ourselves for all who read Facebook? I think probably not. We need to be careful with our political views. Can we share them? Yes. With graciousness, with truth, with dignity, with kindness? Yes. But we need to do it in a way that brings honor to God, not shame on his name. And it appears to me that this is a pretty universal problem. Whether one is a Democrat or a Republican, a Libertarian, an Independent, I guess a Socialist, we have all of that spectrum in our country today and probably beyond. And we need to be careful. Convicted in our heart, yes. Share our heart, yes but do so in a way that is winsome and careful, not condemning and cruel and nasty. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. I think of Titus 3, the 10th verse. It's, it's one of those verses I want to remind myself of over and over again, lest it be about me. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, I have nothing more to do with him. That's pretty stark. It's not just talking about unbelievers, it's talking about believers. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and warning him twice, I have nothing more to do with him. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they should be called sons of God. As I think about this topic of peacemaking, a few things come to my mind as we draw to a close. And, and yeah, I get back to that music stuff. The first thing that crosses my mind is this. We're never more like God than when we embrace peace. When Jesus is born... And the angels proclaim in Luke chapter 2 about Jesus, they say that peace on earth, goodwill to men, that's what he's here for. In Romans 8 verse 7, it says that you and I, prior to coming to Christ, are at enmity with God. We are enemies of the cross. But Jesus came to reconcile us to God. We are never more like Christ. Then when we are peacemakers, that was why Jesus, God, became man, the God-man. He came to reconcile us, sinners, at enmity with God, to God, by paying the penalty of sin, which is death. That by faith we believe in Him and receive Him as Savior, and we are given eternal life. And no longer are we enemies of the cross, but now we are brothers of Christ. We're family. I think of Isaiah 9, verse 6. He proclaims seven things about Christ, one of which is he is the prince of peace. I think of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God desires to build fruit in our life, and the third fruit is peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. In Galatians 5, 22 and 3, 
God the Father is called the God of peace. In Romans 15 and in Hebrews 13 and in 1 Thessalonians 5. You and I are never more like God. We're never more like imitators of Christ than when you and I seek peace. Not peace at all costs, not appeasement, but peace bringing unity whenever we can do so without compromising biblical truth. The second thing I think about when I think of being a peacemaker is that when I look at Scripture, I think Scripture always tells us to side with the innocent and side with the defenseless. If there's an individual who is defenseless, we ought to be on that side. We ought to be protectors. However, Scripture does not always say protect thyself. It says protect the innocent. It doesn't always say protect thyself. Again, the model is Christ. If Christ had desired to protect himself, God never would have become man. If Christ had desired to protect himself, the God-man never would have stayed on earth for 30 to 33 odd years. He never would have set his face like Flint to go to Jerusalem. He never would have allowed the crown of thorns on his head. He never would have allowed people to spit on his face. He never would have allowed the nails in his wrists and his ankles or eventually a spear in his side. He never would have allowed himself to die. He never would have allowed himself to go into a grave. And he would not have risen on the third day. And you and I would be dead in our trespasses. We would still be at enmity with God. And we would be the most hapless people on the face of the earth. But Jesus, who always defends the weak, didn't always defend himself. When there is a greater good, a kingdom good, he put that above himself. That's what a peacemaker does. Always defends the weak, always defends the innocent, always defends the defenseless, often defends self, but not always. Not when God's greater glory, God's kingdom, is in purview. And finally, peacemakers are not just quiet peacemakers, they're overt peacemakers. You remember what Paul said in Romans 12, 18, as far as it depends on you, live at peace one with another. Jesus tells us that if we come to the altar and we realize that we have something against our brother, or our brother has something against us, we leave our gift at the altar and go and reconcile first with our brother and then come back to the altar. It is an overt action for you and I to be peacemakers. And so we end where we started. It might just be that you and I have someone that God is bringing to our mind, someone who has wronged us, someone we have wronged, someone that either way we need to go and seek reconciliation for as far as it depends on us, we will live at peace one with another. 
far as it depends on us. That's a big onus placed on me. I love the way that Solomon puts it in Proverbs 17, the 14th verse. He said the beginning of strife is like letting out water. He's got a picture of a, a dam and the dam is open. And once you open it, it's kind of hard to shut it. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Hmm. I wonder what would happen if we had husbands who say to themselves, quit, Jeff, before the quarrel breaks out. Or if we have wives who say to themselves, quit before the quarrel breaks out. Or children, or parents, or co-workers, or neighbors who say, quit before the quarrel breaks out. I don't have to have the last word. I don't have to make the last point. I don't have to win the argument. Quit before the quarrel breaks out. James helps me out quite a bit on steps that I might take to do so in James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brethren. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I think that's part of my problem. I'm quick to speak, quick to anger, and slow to hear. It says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. I know, corny, but I can't help. Peace out. <laughs> All right, let me pray. Father God, uh, it's really easy. As Dr. Worthington discovered, to talk about peace, to talk about forgiveness in the abstract. But it's much harder when we know we need to go and reconcile when we know that the onus is on us to be a peacemaker, when sometimes it costs us the last word or to prove that we're right or to win an argument or to put someone down. Father, that's our nature. And we ask that by your Spirit, you would move us away from the old man, the old nature, to being new creations in Christ that imitate your Son, Christ. Empower us by your Spirit, we ask. And help us to be known as peacemakers. Shalom, givers. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.